0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Race Hauser. Race is a physical therapist over at True Sports Physical Therapy, and he really excels in what I call combining strength and conditioning with physical therapy. So applying some of those basic principles you learn in a strength and conditioning program and applying that to a rehab setting. And we're discussing that exact topic today in great detail this was a really fun episode and I know you're gonna love it so enjoy race super excited to have you on the podcast today man thanks for being here
1: yeah thanks for having me Dan
0: for people who might not be familiar with you or maybe they haven't you know seen your Instagram content or that sort of thing would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and your backstory and maybe where the whole front stop, front squat doc thing came from
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from Oregon, Um, did my schooling at Pacific University, small D3 school out near the Portland area, was fortunate enough to play four sports, which included football, baseball, golf, and swim. Um, All those sports, we'll save that for a different day. Um, Eventually did my PT school there as well, graduated in 2021. From there, went on to do an orthopedic residency with the University of Maryland, uh, upon that, which I graduated in September of 2022, started working with True Sports, um, and then have been with them ever since. Um, the front squat dot came about. So uh, Ryan, I'm gonna butcher his last name. I think it's Bibu. Um, Bibu, Be- I know that guy. Yeah. So he's a he was a student with Jenny um, while I was there. And he's a big powerlifting guy and kind of get into that realm of things. And I myself am a big front squat guy. I don't do a ton of back squats myself. And I would say I tend to front squat relatively heavy compared to most individuals. I don't remember how the conversation came about, but we were talking about Instagram and he told myself or told me that I should coin myself as the front squat doc. I found that kind of catchy. So I'm pretty sure I did a poll on Instagram essentially asked people if I should change my handle to that name. And I want to say like 70% or so said yes. And then 30 said no. Um, so I said, fuck it, let's go for it. And, um, who knows if like it's helped me gain more followers or not compared to if I just would have kept it like race.hauser DPT or whatever, but I enjoy the name. Um, big front squat guy. So I'm, I'm sticking with it for now.
0: It's funny you say that because I may or may not have shown a patient or two of mine, your video of you clean grip front squat, like split squat, 315 for like a set of eight. Um, but that's a lot of weight. Certainly impressive what you've been able to do. I think you kind of started a whole other like movement too on the side there. The the GIM project, I think it was.
1: Yeah. So the gym project started. Um essentially kind of a a side hustle at this point and still relatively in its uh, infancy Uh, initially started as kind of like a personal training side hustle. Um, But long-term goal, you know, I'm thinking more within like five years or so is to have it be more of an educational platform for strength conditioning coaches and have it be more geared towards coaches who end up working with athletes who are undergoing the rehab process. Um, because I feel like there's a pretty big disconnect between PT and s for a lot of individuals. So trying to help bridge that gap to better serve like the athletes that we work with.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And it's great that you have a platform that's working on that. And I know that's something that you yourself are quite passionate about. You kind of have that cool spot of being both a PT and CSCS. So you kind of wear the PT hat and the strength coach hat at the same time. And I think it's important for there to be an overlap between those two uh, fields, I guess you can say, you know, I feel like PTs in general need to have a good knowledge of loading principles and exercise selection in order to best serve their patients. But
1: I would say a majority
0: of the time, that's not what I see from, you know, past patient stories or patients who have come to see me from like your typical outpatient clinic. Um, would you say you see something similar on your end?
1: Oh, for sure. And I- I don't want to dog on PT school because I feel like it provided us with a lot of like good education, but in terms of educational content, I feel like these sort of loading principles get glossed over relatively quickly. Um, I remember giving a, a lecture last year to my PT school, um, essentially it was on athletic, um, low back pain rehab. And I had a slide up there that was, uh, essentially like a framework for exercise progression where, you know, for plyometrics, it was like extensive to intensive, um, maybe like short coupled to long coupled. And I remember I got the feedback form later from the professor who kind of runs that whole program or the, um, Oh, the elective course. There we go. Um, and the feedback said that I was using terminology that they weren't familiar with. And like me being, uh, I may have glossed over this, but uh, also, coach Pacific's baseball and softball team and Eastern Oregon University's baseball teams in terms of the, the strength conditioning coach. Um, so some of these sort of words and stuff are like relatively intuitive to me, and you know when I'm using them in a, like a lecture or something, I don't typically bat an eye because I'm really familiar with those sort of SNC terms. Um, so when I'm giving a lecture on that, like realizing that they haven't been exposed to this sort of content. Um, which I think, regardless of whether you work with athletes or not, should be the standard of, um, uh, like, our therics content in terms of exercise prescription.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that ultimately, in order to move the needle forward, you have to do something that's going to impact and change someone's life in a positive manner. And as have previously discussed, you know, three sets of 10 sideline clamshell just doesn't quite do that for people uh, for some reason. So. You know, when it comes to you, when you're working with one of your patients or athletes, you know, in the PT clinic there, how do you go about kind of overlapping strength and conditioning principles with physical therapy? And where do you kind of see those lines kind of blend together in your day-to-day treatments?
1: So I think the two biggest things that probably it boils down to is one, their training history and two, probably level of irritability of their symptoms Um, and that's going to give me a decent idea of probably where their entry point is for whatever sort of exercise dosage contraction type that I might give them. If it's someone who's relatively high level and maybe they have knee pain and let's say anything that's super quad dominant just seems to flare them up, I'm probably going to start with either some sort of ISO, um, to help desensitize the area, but I also want to like train them still. Um, and not just do a bunch of table exercises. So I might end up giving them some sort of hip hinge movement, um, where if they have been training for five or so years, I'm likely to expect them to probably have some sort of familiarity with doing a hip hinge with relatively good proficiency. Um, and I know I'm probably going to get a meaningful stimulus to those hamstrings, um, in that posterior chain. Whereas if I have someone who's maybe been lifting for three months or six months, Um, we've all had the struggle of trying to teach someone that hip hinge pattern correctly. And, um, either it's, they're doing more of a, a squat pattern with getting more like, um, vertical pelvic translation, or they're getting excessive, like rounding through their spine. Um, and we're not really getting any sort of meaningful stimulus to help load that posterior chain. So then it kind of falls to the category of, okay, I have this umbrella of the hip hinge movement category how can I now lateralize this or change this movement positionally to still drive that similar sort of movement? So then I think, all right, we have prone variations with GHD. We have supine variations with bridge um, movement patterns. Um, And then from there it's thinking like, which one do I think they're going to be most proficient at to be able to load that target tissue. Um, And and then from there, it's just load appropriately, um, monitor symptoms and keep going from
0: there. I love that breakdown that you just gave, Race. and I think it's essential to individualize it to the person in front of you, because as you mentioned, you know, no two people are going to present exactly the same, so someone might come in, maybe you got two patients with like a patellar tendinopathy, and you might have someone come in who's super flared up, super irritable, and just cannot tolerate much at all, but you still want to get that needle moving forward, so you have to kind of work with what you can And then you might have another individual who, you know, sure they get stuff time to time, but they can tolerate some pretty heavy ISO loading or some super deep shin angles or maybe even some knee behind toe stuff because it's not all knee over toe after all. Um, So I think uh, I think that you know you really hit the nail on the head there with that. And I also like your point about kind of finding ways to progress and regress every exercise. And I think that's something a lot of people I've seen struggle with. They don't really know you know what level they're at at that moment they don't know what the next progression is or the next regression is and kind of almost like taking a basic movement and building 50 progressions forward from it and 50 regressions back from it you know take um take a simple like single leg barbell hip thrust um you know just loading a single leg uh bridge pattern and then finding ways to progress it more challenging or regress it to a simpler form finding ways to add in Multiplanar components or um, other demands. I think it's really, uh, I think that's where kind of the exercise knowledge really comes into play. And I think you did kind of a great job kind of nailing the overarching themes of it there. Now, how do you kind of structure those into one of your sessions from a programming standpoint? Because I think that some people pick great exercises, but they don't know how to put the pieces together, if that makes sense.
1: I'll use, at least from a framework standpoint, I'll use kind of a top down and a bottoms up approach. Uh, So top down is kind of like overarching goals or sort of like adaptations or qualities I want to achieve during that session. And as we start to trickle down um, from the bottoms up, like how's that person feeling that day? How are their symptoms? Uh, What equipment do I have available? Um, And even within session, like I may have like, all right, this next exercise, I want to do a Bulgarian split squat with, or like front rack with the barbell, but maybe all the, uh, the squat racks are taken. So I need, need to pivot, either change my loading modality or maybe just scratch that, um, intervention and then, um, pivot to a different thing and then save that for next time. I'll generally use typically a more, uh, like concurrent sort of modeling where I'm trying to target different adaptations, like within the same session, as well as throughout, um, like week to week and month to month. And essentially how much I'm going to bias, maybe certain qualities at a certain period of time will kind of be dictated on like what I think is the lowest hanging fruit and what's going to give me my most sort of return on investment. Um, And then from there, I'll typically do a lot of kind of contrasts or like complex sort of stuff where maybe I'm going to go with the strength movement first. Um, I'm going to pair that with something that's maybe a little bit more explosive and maybe I have another sort of exercise that's even like, a, at a higher velocity. So just kind of hitting different aspects of that force velocity curve. Um, and then maybe some of my accessory stuff, like, let's say I'm, uh, I want to target a little more strength, um, of things probably my B and C blocks will reflect some of that. And then typically I like to finish up with some sort of hypertrophy or work capacity kind of
0: work. You mean to tell me we can use like cluster sets in physical therapy? It's not just all like straight leg raises? It's groundbreaking. I mean, my mind is blown here. Like A block, B block, C block. Oh my goodness. Like those are terms we don't often hear about. Um, But no, I think that's uh, an essential point is, you know, you can get creative and get crafty. And ultimately, I think that's what it takes in order to progress someone. Like you have to find what they want to get good at and get them better at it. And you can't do that by just doing one thing at a time over and over again. I like the supersets. I also like the approach of exploring the force velocity curve because I think that's something that many people don't quite understand. And even if you can take something like just a straight French contrast training approach and apply that well, I think there's so much power and applicability to hitting various uh, levels of the force velocity curve as opposed to just kind of training the train.
1: And I think from a a time management standpoint too, it just works better given time constraints, especially when we have either 30 minutes or 45 minutes for an appointment that we're with the patient. Um, So I at least know I can get multiple qualities in that one session Um, versus, and like, especially if I know what I want to see from like a kinematic standpoint, I don't want to pass that off to the aide and have them have to, and granted we don't use aids at all, but um, if there's a situation where I had to pass them off to an aide and they're going to be supervising five or six different individuals like any sort of air and maybe like sort of kinematic or movement that I'm wanting like is likely to go under the rug.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. How many exercises are you typically programming for your sessions? Because I feel like part of the loading principle is just overall volume and dosage and that sort of thing. So where do you Where do you kind of set your minimum effective dose for the person in front of you? And where do you kind of set your line as far as like, hey, this might be too much?
1: Um, So it'll depend. Like there'll be sometimes where like, I'll have a flow sheet um, and it may look like I did a 20 different exercise, but maybe it is honestly just a progression of one drill. So we'll take like switches for an example at the wall. Like maybe i start with singles, maybe I then progress to doubles and then triples. Um, maybe I have some stuff similar to that, um, where I'm doing that on the ground, um, or not against the wall and similar sort of thing. I'll go singles, doubles, triples with the switches. And when on that flow sheet, it looks like I've done six exercises, but essentially it's just a progression one on top of another that took me three or four minutes to do. Um, so I think that's one thing, um, I would say generally speaking, I'm probably around like the six to eight, maybe six to 10 exercise mark, depending on kind of what sort of goals I'm getting after for that day. Um, Heck, sometimes just trying to take weight on and off the bar just takes a lot of time uh, with like the re-racking of weights and stuff. Um, But I would say six to eight exercise, generally I'm probably in that three to five sets range. And then my rep range will get pretty variable probably anywhere from four to up to 25, depending on where I'm at in the block, what sort of tempo I'm using, what sort of load I'm using. Um, as we get further out, um, I'll start having people do like singles for EMOMs. Um, so we'll start getting pretty creative.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think the creativity is something that, you know, I appreciate, but I think the patients also appreciate it as well because three sets of 10 of everything gets boring really, really fast. Um, I think that needs to be left in the past. So how do you kind of work those creative elements into your program while still kind of focusing on the same goal? So, you know, what I mean by that is how do you kind of mix in some of those long duration ISOs or AMRAPs or that sort of thing into a goal of, you know, quad strengthening or hamstring strengthening or that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, so I'll typically like if I've hit maybe quad either earlier in that session or, earlier within that week, relatively heavy. Maybe I've had a little bit of isometric loading somewhere throughout that week or that day, um, but we haven't done a ton of like um, high reps sort or of stuff and having to deal with like a lot of that sort of metabolite accumulation. Um, shit, I have a bunch of different sort of uh, what I'll call like bodybuilding s sort of um, types of like program structures or uh, exercise structure I'll use. Um, one common one would be, uh, it's called like the lactate retention method um essentially you do it's pretty terrible uh 30 seconds as many reps as you can in a controlled manner and then you hold it for 30 seconds um, as isometric um the iso can be freaking brutal especially when you load it heavy um other things you'll see is what's called like a badger protocol where you're gonna on the front end you're gonna do some duration of isometric in the middle you're gonna have some number of repetitions um whether you want to go 10, 15, 20, and then on the back side of it, you're going to have another isometric at the end. Um, if I'm having this probably later in the session, I'm probably going to go higher holds or higher duration holds or longer duration holds, higher rep schemes, and then on the back end, longer duration holds. Um, I'll use it for people on the strength block as well, um, where I'll go shorter duration isos, shorter or uh, less reps and higher weight, and then same thing on the back end for the ISO. Um, I'll have people do, I'm going to set a timer for three minutes. We're gonna do a three minute AMRAP, get as many reps as you can. Um, I'll do what's called like a mountain dog style, which essentially is, uh, you pick a super heavy weight. You're going to do like quarter range partials or half range partials, uh, for high number of repetitions, we'll say 50 or 60 decrease the weight roughly by half. Now we're going to go about three quarters of the way up or so for, you know, 25, 30 reps, half the weight again. Um, and then we're going to go full range of motion for about 10 to 15 repetitions and just trying to like better match, like the resistance profile and the strength curve of that muscle. And that one is probably everyone's favorite in my opinion.
0: (laughs) I mean, it it sounds like a great name, mountain dog set. That's, that's (laughs) awesome. And, um, you know, I think that's the kind of creativity too that. Again, patients appreciate, we appreciate, but it also leads to the best outcomes and results because, you know, sports or really just life activity in general is inherently unpredictable. And if your PT session is predictable or, you know, I'll take it a step further and say your workout session, because I think that exercise spans far beyond physical therapy and rehab needs. Um, You know, I think that you need it to be unpredictable to a certain uh, certain state um, in order to get the most out of it because if you go in and you know what to expect uh, and you know you've done it a million times then I have to ask how much are you really getting out of that session as opposed to something that it's going to burn it's going to be a little crazy probably never done it before but that's going to make you better at a wide array of things instead of just one specific thing you know i kind of look at it like if you want to get better at the squat do you just do one variation of the squat three times a week for a year or you do 50 different variations as a squat uh over a year you know i think the one who does a lot of different things really well is going to be better than the one who does one thing really well
1: yeah i'll so i'm a big proponent of like definitely varying like loading parameters um load placement um low or uh stance all those things that are within like a relatively similar movement pattern and on a, on a podcast maybe a year or so ago where um i used an analogy of essentially like a ball in a valley and like if all you ever did was that same back squat over and over again like your ability to withstand what i'll call like perturbations for that movement pattern like that valley is really deep like you're pretty, pretty robust when it comes to that one particular movement pattern. Um, but if you, widen out your stance a couple inches, maybe change your tower angle, change load placement, like your squat goes to shit, output goes to shit. Um, whereas like you kind of alluded to, if we give them exposure to a bunch of different, uh, like loading parameters and exercises, um, that they can still have relatively good output with like my Valley might not be quite as deep, but it's going to be much larger. So, the ability for me to withstand perturbations um, across the, a wide variety of different movements is going to be much greater um, and probably going to be a more robust individual.
0: Where do you think that line uh, on the depth of the valley comes in, Race? So, what I mean by that is, you know, if I've got someone who I want to really, you know, expand their movement vocabulary or movement IQ, whatever term you want to call it, and get them good at a lot of different things how far do you think I can stretch that while not diluting the fact that we still need a few valleys to be very, very deep, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. So maybe it is like in some of your accessory blocks where to get back to your question, um, like maybe, like, maybe your like kind of deeper Valley exercise we'll call it is maybe that sort of main block, a block, maybe even comes to that B block. And then maybe, trying to expand that sort of bandwidth. Maybe that comes in form of movement prep, um, getting more exposure and variety there. And the other thing would come in like with your accessories and some of those later blocks, maybe like you see in a D block where um, just maybe based on kind of familiarity and skill with the movement, maybe output won't be as high. So maybe it's not quite as, maybe it's not giving us our most bang for our buck up in that A block, but it'll still be a good sort of movement in the C block to help facilitate um, you know, adaptations towards that primary goal. Um, I think that can be a great way to kind of structure things. Um, i also look at it too, as we have to make sure that exercise is not so far off that now our output, um, decreases drastically, um, because then we're probably not getting what we want. And so honestly, it might just be making slight substitutions from like a back squat to a front squat. Um, versus, I don't know, someone trying to fucking squat on a, do a back squat on a BOSU ball or something.
0: (laughs) Do do people still do that? (laughs) Yeah, I've seen it. (laughs) No, I love that uh, answer. And I think that you really uh, alluded to an important uh, consideration as well Is you know, warm up is a great time to hit so many different movement factors and considerations. And uh, I'll admit I've been guilty of it myself I try and hit like as much as I can in like a five to ten minute warm-up. But a lot of times from a fact of simplicity, it is so easy to just crush lateral bandwalks, standing clamshells, standing hip flexion, um, all kinds of different like hip burners as like your like warm-up. But I, I do definitely find some benefit from like getting out of that at times and kind of getting into like, you know, here's five minutes and we've got a pole set to this height. I want you to get underneath it as many different ways as we can or something. Like, I certainly see a lot of value in going like, almost like freestyle on the warm-up, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to put it. Is that kind of what you, um, you do yourself or? Um, so
1: I've been trying to get more creative with kind of how I'll go about like plyometrics essentially. Um, so I'll do a little bit more extensive based plyos typically, especially if there's someone who's a little bit kind of further out can tolerate some of that stuff. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of getting a little bit more creative with how I'm having them perform the the, um, the extensive plyos. If we want to go more in terms of, like, true jumping categories within, like, the jumping community, community um, you might have, like, the light tier, which is, like, your typical, like, traditional pogos that you think of. Um, and then I might add in some, like, medium tier stuff, which is I'll call, like, a midway point between, like, true extensive and true intensive um, plyos um and I'll just change you know are we scissoring? do we go hopscotch do I have them do like some sort of like curvilinear pattern um rotational stuff um and just try to give them uh, exposure to a lot of different kind of plyometric loading that way um and I feel like that's just I find it that they have more engagement compared to just doing the typical same warm up drill every time like you mentioned kind of that hip burner um I will say with some of more of my younger athletes when it comes to like, there's a couple kids who I have who are nine or 10 years old, I'll utilize a lot more of that play kind of structure because I feel like it keeps them more engaged within the session.
0: You mean you mean nine year olds don't want to do bandwalks? walks? <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. Um, no, I think that's a great point too is from an engagement standpoint, it's certainly more fun to do things that are enjoyable and slightly unpredictable. Um, And I think that's something that, like I said, sometimes we're all guilty of kind of falling into like, you know, comfortable type things, but sometimes it's important to get uncomfortable. And I'd say that strength and conditioning by nature is uncomfortable stuff. You know, (laughs) I don't usually feel too good when I'm on my last rep or two of a certain exercise, but I know that those are the ones that really help me move forward. So I think that as you mentioned before, Uh, patients who have had a past training history especially get a little bit more out of that because they're able to relate to it better. Um, And I found at least from my own experience that a patient population that doesn't have a strong background training history is certainly more challenging to work with from a like straight loading standpoint because Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to spend some time kind of teaching and cueing some of the movement Which, um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also like that's time that we could have loaded tissue that is now being spent to acquire a skill, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think one way to kind of help work with that is sometimes I'll pair an output based movement that's lower skill um, with that skill based movement that I'm trying to teach them. Um, That way I can still get meaningful load to that target tissue, but we're still also kind of working on that skill um, for eventual adequate loading for that movement, I want to have them perform. Um, And then I feel like also patients with a lower training history or younger training history also have a hard time delineating between what is pain and what is just discomfort with exercise because um, if you're getting like a mad quad burn, like I feel like a lot of times people mistake that for pinch like knee pain. And it's like, no, we're just loading the heck out of your quad in a good way and you're just not accustomed to that sort of unpleasant sort of experience
0: yeah yeah no definitely and i find that especially with certain positions um like if i go like lunge with heel float all of a sudden like everything just lights up and uh it's always fun when you see the look on someone's face the first time their legs start shaking like that yeah um it's it's always just priceless absolutely priceless and um I, i think that's kind of the other thing too is like i think it's our job to teach movement skill and movement acquisition but we can't get so lost in teaching movement that we miss the whole point of what we're there for. You know, I'm not there to teach someone like the perfect squat form or the perfect like, you know, lunge form. Like we need to be able to do it well, but we also need to load tissue and get stronger. And if I spend my entire session just teaching like squat form, then I feel like I'm almost like doing that person a disservice if we're still not like Getting what we're there for in the first place out of it. You know, I can't I can't just teach like, you know, every post op ACL do forty-five minutes to an hour of straight like squat form work.
1: Right. Like at that point, like fuck mm-hmm. it, let's load up a wall sit or something and have them get at it, or like if we have access to a leg extension machine, just fucking hammer away at the quads that way. Um other thing I see too is when it comes to actually having a movement framework for how you want to observe movement. I don't think a lot of PTs have that per se, or don't know what to look for when it comes to um, what the movement probably should look like to help get the the most desired loading out of your target tissue. Um, and for me, a common one is the RDL. Um, I feel like most people just have people bend forward at the hip, whereas I'll typically have people do more of a, or try to get more of a posterior translation of the, the pelvis horizontally. And people will typically feel a pretty different uh, or a pretty drastic difference in posterior chain loading with the that posterior pelvic translation versus if they just bend forward at the hip. I always see people always complain of like, oh, I just feel my back working versus if we can constrain the movement better to get that posterior shift Then like, oh yeah, now I feel my hamstring working.
0: How do you like to cue that? Do you do like a band pull like A to P or how do you like to set that up? So I have a bunch of different options that I'll
1: go to or a a handful. One is I'll typically go near a wall first. um, And all I want them to do is like just push the hips back towards the wall. Um, And if that's not working, a lot of times I'll end up getting a dowel and putting it I don't know, pretty close to like met heads on the outside of their foot. And then I'm going to have them have their shoulder brush down the front part of that dowel without having it tip forward, um, as a way to try to get out that posterior translation of the pelvis. Um, I've seen, I've tried using like a, a band pull through. I end up, at least from what I've, when I've tried using it, I've had people who primarily will just like round through the low back to try to get the band and pull it. Um, I know some people who go with like a tall kneeling sort of pattern and have like band around the hips and have them kind of sit into their hips and come back up. Um, I would say for the most part, I tend to have pretty good success using the wall as a, as a constraint. Um, other thing I'll use too is, um, if I'm getting too much like posterior tibial translation backwards, I'll set them up close to a box where that front of the knee has to stay in contact with whatever sort of object as they're pushing their pelvis posteriorly. Um, that way I can try to get what I view as like as much excursion as I can between the hip and the knee.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I like those cues and I like those setups. And I think, uh, I think you're kind of hitting an important point too. It's sometimes we pick the right exercise, but we're not getting the appropriate response from it. And I think that happens far too often, especially if we – you know, aren't paying attention to the person in front of us close enough is, you know, plain and simple. I could give them, like you said, the RDL for posterior chain loading. And if I'm not careful, I end up just getting loaded spinal flexion. Um, (laughs) I always found it funny that, um, you know, there's been some things I've seen online where a few people have been posting about like a seated good morning as like the perfect exercise to load the posterior chain. And I just kind of look at it and put this puzzled look on my face because I feel like the amount of people that could actually do it correctly and get the posterior chain loading from it is very minimal at best. And Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it comes back to a, you know, a point of, you know, are you getting what you want out of it and how much do you have to invest into it? And is there a more simple option available? So, you know, like you mentioned, maybe, you know, maybe the super advanced RDL setup is not going well, but Maybe I can put someone in a kickstand position and grind away at an RDL and get exactly what I want out of it. Or maybe I can use an external stimulus such as a wall to get what I want out of it without having to go through 10 different hoops to, um, you know, get the adaptation I'm looking to elicit, I'll say. Um, So I certainly think there's value in kind of thinking outside of the box and getting creative with how you set things up and how you do things in order to make sure that you get what you want out of it. And um, I, I think some of that even comes back to the questions that you're asking during the session when you're working with the person in front of you. It's, it's not just, how are you feeling here? Or, hey, no pain, right? Like, ask deeper questions. And I think the better you get at asking questions, the better your session is going to become as a result. I definitely think to some extent we need to be
1: feeling the target tissue that we're trying to work. I will say, like, there's definitely times where maybe I've done some sort of squat and did not feel my glutes whatsoever, but the next day my glutes were the sorest thing ever. Um, but I definitely think there's some value in having the sensation of that leg or whatever target tissue that you're working is the structure, or the, the tissue that is actually working. The other thing too is trying not to over cue verbally, um, maybe keeping at one, two, two verbal cues, because I feel like if we start trying to throw in three, four, five, six cues, now they're trying to process too much information um, and we're still not getting the desired move, uh, movement that we, uh, that we want. So I always think that if I can give them some sort of external constraint that can better help me drive that movement pattern that I want, that's going to be a better option for me versus trying to cue it to death verbally. And if I've done a couple different sort of um, external constraints and still not getting the, the pattern that I want, um, kind of like we talked about from there, I'm probably going to do some sort of output-based movement with a skill-based movement. And then eventually, I'm going to come back to that sort of skill-based movement to see if we can get more meaningful load in that tissue.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that approach a lot. And um, you know, as we've been discussing here so far, Race, I feel like someone's going to be listening to this and saying, wow, there's so much going on here. There's so much to this world of exercise and strength and conditioning and applying it to a PT and rehab setting. Um, but I don't think it needs to be overly complicated. I don't think it has to be like this crazy thing that everyone should be fearful of. And I'll even take it a step further and say, I don't even think you need to study exercise for seven, eight years to really, you know, apply it effectively with, um, you know, your patient population or your clients that way. Um, I do think at least from my own experience, in my opinion, that there's a lot of value in being active yourself in some capacity uh, in order to instruct movement and teach movement and kind of, you know, expect what this person is going to feel. Um, But I certainly think that even though it might seem daunting, this is not like a super complex world, I'll say.
1: And definitely I think there's uh, some validity to like having skin in the game. Um, One in terms of like, understanding what the patient's going to feel whether it's resistance training um i especially think when it comes to plyometrics that's probably where we struggle as a profession a lot of times um with that sort of later stage in terms of return to sport and i don't know i i personally feel like box jumps are our go-to plyos and we're not really getting like true stretch sorting cycle not having to deal with any sort of impact and collisions with the ground and like actually doing some of that stuff yourself and seeing like potentially how intense some of that stuff can be um, I think might give people a better appreciation of one stresses through certain structures during that exercise Two, what sort of volume they could potentially you know have a general idea of like what might be a good volume or rough starting point for that individual Um, and then two just from a an exercise database standpoint like having been exposed to a ton different sort of exercises and movements that one I've tried out myself and two it's like all right like now, let me think of a bunch of different scenarios, patient populations, injuries, post-op conditions that um, this might one, benefit the patient and two, like when might I consider to implement this?
0: Yeah, definitely. I, um, I have a little game that I've uh, been playing. Uh, it, it was in response to a few patients that came in to see me and they had certain issues with certain movements at certain uh, body parts. So I'll pick on this one here, for example say you have a surfer who comes in and they have issues with their duck dive when they're surfing in their knee. Um, Well, now you've kind of got to reverse engineer it like, okay, here's the movement pattern. How can I load tissue in that pattern? Um, So they show you the movement and then all you've got to do is kind of put together the pieces of this is how I can load this muscle group or this piece of that movement versus that piece of the movement. Um, And I think that that can almost become a game that you play like, I don't know if there's a physical therapy party game out there somewhere, but, um, you know, picking like a sports PT party game anyways, picking like a sport, a movement from the sport, and then like name six exercises that you can do to load that specific motion effectively. Um, I certainly see value in that. And that's a good little drill to do to keep yourself mentally sharp. Um, if you have students, they always love the little challenge or um, most of them love the little challenge that you can throw their way with that. Uh, I also think it's really essential to nail the plyo side because as you mentioned, uh, box jumps are a very common one, but box jumps are very low force, uh, especially at the knees, uh, especially when we compare it to something like like a depth jump. You know, I guess what kind of like plyo progressions would you suggest to PTs who are working with that end stage athlete? Like what kind of things can we do that expand beyond, you know, the box jump, the depth jump and the tuck jump?
1: I want to have stuff that's a little bit more like higher force, um, lower time components, potentially. Um, if I'm looking at things from like an impulse standpoint, that'll be a, a, a large portion of how I'll start to view um, plyometrics is from like a lower impulse to a higher impulse. Um, and if there are any, PTs out there who are unfamiliar with the the variables within an impulse. It's just force times velocity, or not force velocity, but force times time. Um, So I can super easily manipulate any sort of variable. Um, I'm thinking from a velocity standpoint, if I want to alter the height of the box, that's going to alter the velocity that they're going to impact the ground with. Um, If I want more of a higher velocity or a higher force movement, maybe I have them do some sort of reactive jump where it's like a quick rebound versus if I want to probably have a little bit lower force and kind of draw that time, maybe I'll cue them like a softer sort of landing. um, And then we'll have like maybe a slight pause and then do a jump. So it's almost like in a way, non-counter movement. Um, And then, so one viewing things from the, the lens of like impulse. And then two, I also want to get them exposure to be able to change uh like planes of motion force vectors so maybe i'm gonna have them do like a single leg broad jump forward we're gonna go right into a single leg vertical jump they're gonna land go immediately into a single leg broad jump again and we're gonna go that the length of the turf um maybe i'm having them doing like forward and backwards leaps where uh, essentially it's just like a single leg double leg jump and i'm gonna have them go back and forth essentially as far as they can on both directions um i don't think we do enough loading going from a starting from a forward position, jumping to a backwards position, and then jumping back forward. I think it's like a great way to like load the Achilles in a way um, and get them used to having like that foot. What I'll call like similar to a position where um, like when we're sprinting and that foot's behind us and we're striking the ground, something similar to that sort of position. Um, we can add certain things similar to that with maybe we're going from like a sagittal plane movement to a frontal plane movement. We just have to make sure that we're not getting the movement overly complex, where we're starting to now decrease the output or the primary intention of that uh, movement. Um, I think those are easy ways to, other easy ways are just to incrementally progress the height of the box and doing depth lands, depth drops, um, drop jumps, all that stuff. Um, So I I think as as long as people have a framework for categorizing, progressing, regressing, they'll be far better off compared to a lot of other individuals and I always tell people they don't need to have like my model, but they at least need a model for progression, regression, and lateralization.
0: I completely agree with that. You need to find a way to scale up and scale down. And, um, I also agree in the sense that it doesn't have to be overly complicated, like we were talking about a minute ago, is I think everyone opens up the Instagram, sees some cool exercises and thinks, how in the heck can I put this together? You know, what are we trying to accomplish here? And while there's value in getting fancy at times, I also think that there's a lot to be said about mastering the simple things and doing the simple things really well. And at the end of the day, if progressive height box jump gets you to where you need to be, then I can't really judge you for that. You know, I'm, um, I've become a huge fan of variations of the skater hop side to side and adding load, adding a band, um, changing what the like swing leg does and various things like that. And, um, you know, it's a simple side to side hopping pattern, but it's the kind of thing that I can manipulate like 15 different variables with. get a lot of different things from and sure it might not be the most like sexy thing to post on instagram but i think there's value in it um i I also got to say you know you mentioned something about softer landing couldn't we just soften the landing by like jumping onto blue foam uh instead of like the ground wouldn't that like soften the landing too we could um (laughs) i have thought about uh um i'm still trying to find use for that thing
1: uh if you want to if you have another PT there, you can use it as a saddle. Um, sit on that like a bit, like you do a bear crawl, have the other person hop on. It works great.
0: Uh, speaking from experience, I know. Yeah, I have.
1: Um, but I think there is some value in potentially altering the service a little bit. Um, like, you know, like those gym mats we'd always do like sit ups on? Yep. Like it's, you know, a little bit softer, but it's not so soft that it's like all quote unquote unstable. Like, I think there's some value in changing some of those surfaces up. Um, If you have access to, like, a sand pit or something, that can be another easy way to kind of delay that sort of impact a little bit or, like, draw out the time component of things. But like you mentioned, like, a lot of people see stuff on Instagram. I feel like blaze pods are probably the hot thing right now. And they see some cool drill on Instagram and they're going to grab that without any sort of consideration as to who, why, when they should implement that. And like what sort of objective criteria are going to use to determine why you should use that exercise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately, if you can ask yourself the question why and give yourself a good answer for everything that you do, then you've created a effective program at the end of the day. (laughs) Like if you have good reasoning and good rationale, then you know, you've, you've got what you need. You don't have to do it like I do it or like you do it or how, you know, anyone else does it. You can kind of go where there's no path and blaze a trail if you want, but you need to have the why. And I also think you need to produce the results because if what you're doing isn't working, you kind of have to go back and change something. And uh, I guess that's the last thing I'll ask you here is, you know, I've seen some people who things aren't working, so they just abandon and blow it up and start over. Um, but, I think, I think a lot of times their plan would have worked if they just gave it a little bit more time. So how long do you think someone should go before they just kind of blow the whole ship up and start fresh with, you know, a program or a progression series that they're working on with a patient?
1: Um, that is a good question. So I'm going to approach this a couple different ways. One, is the PT truly pushing the patient hard enough that they're actually going to achieve some sort of benefit from that program. Um, and then two like is the patient themselves also providing that same or uh, effort that's going to drive some sort of positive adaptation or push that needle forward. I think both those questions need to be answered. Um, I would say if, and some of it's going to depend on like the condition that you're treating, Um, if it's more of a chronic issue, I might expect maybe slower results. Um, if I'm working with someone who's maybe let's say 12 weeks post op ACL and uh they're a star tendon graft and I'm measuring hamstring strength after six weeks, I'm probably gonna expect a pretty large jump in hamstring strength. And if we haven't, then it's like I should probably go back and reevaluate like why I didn't see you know a good jump from you know, week 12 to week 18 in my hamstring strength. Um, so I'm going to probably say that six to eight week mark, but if I'm being honest, I think if we go to like the fitness world and people jumping ship from program to program, I don't necessarily have a problem with them doing that per se. I think if they actually worked hard and still and jump from program to program, they would see results, but it's their lack of effort within that program itself. Um, And then they blame the program for not getting the results that they want. And then they just hop from program to program.
0: Or I'll take that and twist it slightly. There's someone who puts too much effort in and they're playing this sport and that sport at the same time. And they're doing physical therapy and they're doing their strength and conditioning workouts. And they're running in their free time because we have to stay in shape. And, oh, by the way, um, we forget to eat. Uh, because we're always on the road between one sporting event to the next. And we don't have time to sleep because, you know, we've got to focus on the sports and the activity. And I find a lot of times they run into issues and they try to jump from program to program because it's the program's fault. Um, And, you know, I'm all for athletes pushing themselves and I am all for athletes like finding their limits. And I mean, you know, a lot of athletes we work with, are in their teenage years. And I mean, when you're a teenager, you can do almost anything without issue, but everyone has their limit. And there's a point where people start to break, not bend. And, you know, if you're someone who's maybe you're playing soccer and field hockey, both at the same time, both travel teams over the summer, or maybe you're on the travel baseball team over the summer, playing five games a week, every week, and you're going to the gym six, seven days a week, doing like arm farm and that sort of thing and you're doing your pt and you're running and all these other things get thrown into the mix things are going to start to break down a little bit and you're not going to get the results you want from your program and it might not be a programming fault it might not be a strength coach fault it might not be anyone's fault but the fact that you have not taken the time to allow the stimulus to kind of take shape I guess I'll say you know you need to you're not going to build muscle during your workout you're going to build muscle afterwards so being willing to kind of look at the entire picture and say, here's where I think we're missing it. Um, And that might not be your program, that might be other factors. And I know no one likes to hear the phrase slow down, but sometimes we have to.
1: So yeah, I'd also say like potentially addition by subtraction too. I know a lot of times kind of like you're mentioning and especially like in the earlier years, uh, like in high school, People always like more volume is going to always be better, lead to better gains, more muscle mass. And as you alluded to, if they're playing two sports at once, they have a skills uh, trainer on the side. Um, they have multiple tournaments a week. Have a hard time getting food because they have to jump from one practice to the next, a tournament to the next. Um, that maybe addition by subtraction or detracting uh, subtracting some of that volume might be a benefit to them. I think the other thing too is if we're able to recognize that understand like maybe how our programming might change because of that so maybe we might do maybe like some overcoming isos that might be a decent way to get us a light sort of like strengthening kind of stimulus or output stimulus um as a or as opposed to like just trying to crush fucking six by three on back squats or something
0: no for sure for sure race i feel like we've hit so many different points and considerations that apply very well to the world of, you know, physical therapy, especially as it relates relates to working with athletes uh, and programming for their specific needs and conditions. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else that we might have missed today in our discussion?
1: Um, I think just kind of like sum everything up. I think one, the biggest piece is having a framework for exercise, prescription exercise, regression, progression, being able to scale exercises. And I think from like the way in which you go about structuring a session, not thinking about having like, oh, I need to make sure I get this Bulgarian split squat in, or this sort of glute exercise. in. I think when you have that too rigid of a structure, if whatever sort of equipment that you want to use is now taken or not available, I feel like having that sort of structure, you start to kind of panic and freak out. Um, whereas if you would structure things maybe more based on what sort of qualities you want to hit with certain kind of movement patterns. So maybe I want to work a little bit more unilateral um, posterior chain strength. Now I have my umbrella of different positions um, that I can essentially hammer that in. And from there, it's like, okay, well, all the barbells are taken. Um, so I can't do a single leg barbell RDL. Um, but maybe I have dumbbells available. Um, but maybe dumbbells aren't the best bet because their grip's limiting factor. So heck, maybe I'll go with like a single leg GHD or a single leg bridge variation that might target the hamstrings and I can still get pretty good load that way. Um, so I, I think viewing um, or at least structuring um, PT sessions that way allows for a more flexible fluid and robust sort of way to go about progressing an individual. There's some validity, like we talked about like to having skin in the game. And I think there's something to be said about like, we are preaching to them to lift weights, do some form of like cardiovascular exercise. Um, we should probably do something similar if we're trying to preach that. And especially with us being in a health related and movement based field, like we know what sort of, Um, like, risks are out there if we are sedentary, if we don't exercise, if we don't meet physical activity guidelines. Um, So if we are the ones advocating for our patients do that, we should probably be doing something similar to them, or at least some sort of um, movement endeavor.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that can look different for everyone. You know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, as Kenny Powers says, the best at exercising. You can play real sports. Like, um or you can exercise you can do it all you can do crossfit you can do powerlifting. you can be a strong man you can do yoga you could run um you could be like a cyclist or um i met someone the other day who does like rowing type stuff like dude like canoed for like, like 12 hours um which that's impressive in its own accord um so i think that fitness uh, looks different for everyone and you don't have to like confine yourselves to one thing um but find something, pursue it and just, just do it, man. I should, we should be sponsored by Nike uh, race <laughs> for, uh, for people who want to find out more about you, uh, where can they find you at? Are you like in the Instagram generation or are you still more like MySpace era or where are you at?
1: Um, unfortunately, I no longer have MySpace. space. Um, I can probably see if my Hotmail is still alive. Um, that MSN messenger that was hot back in the middle school days.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we recorded the podcast today on Uvu. I don't know if anyone remembers that.
1: <laughs> um, but pretty active on Instagram. Um, it'll be at the underscore front squat underscore doc. Um, and then my other um, Instagram page for the gym project is at um, the gym project, which is the GIM project. And then I'm also on Twitter. I don't remember my handle, to be honest. I'm not very active on that. Um but stay uh stay tuned. Um there's me and a couple of buddies who are looking to release an ebook for ACL rehab. So stay on the lookout for some of that stuff. Um I think it's gonna be pretty big for helping individuals know what to look for in terms of like ACL rehab.
0: That's awesome. You see, that's one of the things that I really respect about you, Race is You're very focused on giving back and helping other individuals. And while sometimes we might do that through the power of memes and picking on some people once in a while, um, I, I think there's a lot of value in offering content like that. So greatly appreciate that. And I know there's always good stuff on your Instagram account. So we'll link to that in the description below. And I really appreciate your time and a conversation on so many different factors that relate to the world of exercise programming for your patient. Really appreciate you, Rayce.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan. I'm sure we could have talked many more hours about this stuff, but yeah, I truly appreciate you having me on here. Hey
0: everyone. I wanna take a second and tell you all about AlleyRx. R X is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio and you can use the coupon code capital D capital B R A U N Capital R X. So RX at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.